You've been sold the idea that financial independence is all about some number on your account statement, or even worse, that you don't qualify because of where you started out. That's just not true. It's not about some well-kept secret of the wealthy. It's about finding the right information and knowing how to apply it. On the Get Ready for the Future show, we're answering your questions so you can start making real financial change today. The journey to true financial independence begins right here, and it starts with you. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Get Ready for the Future show, helping people discover, protect, and share true financial independence. Saddle up for questions and answers once again today. My name is Scott Inman, Janet Walker with me. Glad to be back in the saddle in the driver's seat today. Thanks to John for filling in for me last week. How do you do? He, he did fine. He I did mean, he's, he's no Scott Inman, no, but he did fine. No, he, but he's, he's definitely been here before. Been there, done that, right? Yeah, it, it felt like the old days. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, especially with these questions and answers, right? Yeah, That's yeah. feel like the old days for you a little yeah, bit. Yeah, because we used to do the show, you know, live on Saturdays, and, and the content was nothing but questions. And we felt really good, frankly, when we changed the format back to just like, we're just taking your questions. So, yeah. Yeah, we just rolled with it like the old days. It was fun. We've got some good questions today. I got some questions while I was off last week. You know, the reason I was gone was my 20-year-old daughter was having a surgery. She tore her ACL uh, playing college soccer. So we had a few uh, little couch time, right? There was yeah. a lot of time yeah. hanging out and, and taking care of her. But that doesn't mean the financial discussion was over. You can have that uh, at any age with your kids right. or your grandkids. Uh, well, if they can obviously comprehend that level of information, but uh, always good to get back and get back into the uh, groove of the Get Ready for the Future show. So questions today about HSAs, about stock options. We've, we're kind of running the gamut today, so let's dive right in. Our first question is from Amelia in Little Rock, and she writes, exercising discounted stock options has now caused me to have 33% of my portfolio in my company, which is a bank. Is this too much? How do I not participate when they are discounted? Well, thanks very much, Amelia, for your question. You know, the question first is, so she says it's a bank, and she is taking advantage of discounted stock options. So generally speaking, that's a, an offer to an employee to be able to receive or purchase mm-hmm. uh, shares of the company stock that is not what the market uh, value is, not what the, the trade uh, uh, amount is on any given day. So that you're basically getting a discount. You're, you're right. getting a discount of the value of that bank. And the idea is as the bank uh, stock shares go up in value, you're getting even more if you were to sell out of them, right? Because automatically, right. when you have ownership of that stock, you have really, as long as it didn't tank in that particular day, you've already got a capital gain. Yeah, there's some built-in profit because mm-hmm. you bought it at a discount. So. One of the things that we would ask about, there's really, we probably have more questions, Amelia, for you Mm -hmm. than you have for us on this, but we'll just kind of talk through it. One of the things I would ask is, how do you feel about your company? And, And I know this is a financial discussion, not a feelings discussion, but many times those feelings are based in things that you know about the company. So what do you think about their financial stability? What do you know about their financial stability? Because even if this is available at a discount, you don't want it to be a repeat of some banking stories that we've heard in recent history where it's it's not a good situation. Mm-hmm. Their stock value is not going to be what you, you would like for it to be. So you really do want to understand the financial stability of the company. And then I, I would also talk with you a little bit about diversification. You've probably heard the phrase, you know, mama always said, don't put all your eggs in one basket. And 
while I'm sure this is not all of your eggs, when we talk about 33% of -hmm. your portfolio being in one company, I don't care what company it is and how good you feel about them, how stable they might be, that is a pretty significant portion of your future income when you think about it in terms of retirement for you to have exposure to just one company, Scott. Yeah. So look, everybody likes a discount. We all like discounts when we go shopping. You know, I think of the story about uh, my late wife, Nicole, who loved shopping. She mm-hmm. loved shopping because she wanted to get that deal, right? She never paid anything, paid full price for anything. Right. I, I don't remember it ever happening. But what did she do? She accumulated a lot more than she needed because it was on sale, right? Yeah, she she yeah. went after it because it was on sale. That was the priority for her. And I jokingly would tell her all the time, we cannot afford for you to keep saving us money, <laughs> right? Because we were spending more, even though we were getting a discount. And I think that kind of speaks to this situation too. Just because it is a discount doesn't mean you should overload or overweight to it and have more than you need. of a portfolio in a single stock we would consider generally as too much. I think the rule of thumb, Janet, would be no more than 10% in a single stock. Yeah, and and frankly, a lot of times we're not really even comfortable with that, but but certainly no more than that. So you do have too many eggs in one basket at Mm -hmm. this point. And Scott, I'll elaborate a little bit on on, uh, your story about Nicole and her, her shopping because things were on sale uh, my dad would say something kind of comparable to my mom because mom, if 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 it, if it was on sale, it didn't matter what it was. If it was on sale, mom was going to buy it. And he used to say, "Elizabeth, you'd buy a pair of old dirty socks if they were on sale." And right. she would laugh about it. But the reality was, she bought things many times not because she needed them, but because they were on sale. And so, Amelia, I would challenge you to think, uh, you know, about what my mom did what Nicole did and think about, are you buying this because you need it and it is a part of a wise financial plan for you or are you buying it because it's on sale? And just like you wouldn't buy old dirty socks just because they're on sale, you know, it doesn't mean that that we need to, to buy the stock, even if it's a good stock. We don't need to buy it just because it's on sale. That speaks to quality, right? Yeah. The dirty sock yeah. analogy there is we don't know the quality and we don't need more than we need to make our goals, to hit our goals. And that kind of brings up the last part of this is when you think about it, it, it should be more about goal setting and financial planning than just, hey, this is a deal. And when she says she's wound up with 33% of her portfolio in a single company, that may be because of performance. But if you are contributing 33%, you know, right. you're, you're using 30% of your dollars to purchase that and that's why you've done it, we need to look at where else are you contributing and is that enough, particularly if there's a 401k offering mm-hmm. for you here uh, from your employer. You definitely want to be getting enough in there to get the match from your employer. Cer- certainly we hope that she's not missing an employer right. match so that she can get a discount on stock. Yeah, a- absolutely. You just really want to look at the prioritization of your dollars and knowing that this is for future income, then how many dollars do you have now to allocate? How many should you be allocating for your future? And then of those dollars that you're allocating, where do they need to go? And and some of them might still go towards company stock. We don't know. That, you know, I'm not telling you to back off completely, but you have a significant portion there now. But if it is, if that's all you've been doing, then maybe we still do some, but we start doing 
other dollars in additional directions to complement the stock. Yeah, and getting off base a little bit from just a million talking to everyone listening when it comes to a single stock, whether it's your employer uh, or it's just a stock you like or you think has mm-hmm. tremendous upside, that is kind of a potential pitfall when it comes to investing too. And I think it's worth spending just a minute or two to talk about that. You know, I actually sat on a uh, webinar uh, yesterday and when one of, uh, with one of the portfolio managers, a group that manages portfolios and we utilize for our uh, clients. And he was showing a graph of the S&P 500 and how he's calling it the Magnificent Seven, Janet, the top, you know, the biggest companies uh, in that S&P 500 mm-hmm. has, have returned 81% year to date. The S&P 500 <laughs> is at 11 Right. Yeah. So it's a big the, difference. Yeah. And you, and the point he was making was, is there's a there's a little bit of an overflow into those seven big companies and not rightfully so. But the point right. I'm trying to make is, is uh, when you think of one of those big companies is Amazon is one of them. And Jeff Bezos has talked about uh, at some point in time, Amazon's not going to exist anymore or at least not like it does. Yeah. Now. So even one of the biggest companies in the world that has performed 81 or part of a group of stocks that has performed 81 percent a year to date is vulnerable. I mean, to some extent, right? So if you think about vulnerability in terms of an elevator, okay? Uh, my son, my 14-year-old son would definitely relate to this story because he hates getting into an elevator. <laughs> he, he is terrified of getting I just, into an elevator. I just can't believe he's 14, but uh, go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yes. And, and, well, and I think he should grow out of that because he's written on, he's had a lot of successful missions in an elevator. You know, nothing yeah, has happened. Yeah. But let's talk about how the elevator is built. It's held up with cables, right? If it is one cable, which represents one stock, if it's Amelia's bank stock, right? Mm -hmm. No matter how good it is today, if at some point in time that snaps and you have everything, and she's not not saying that she has everything, but she has 33% of her portfolio in a single stock, that's going to put tremendous stress on that elevator to be able to make it to the bottom safely, right? Mm -hmm. If you've got one cable, it's gone. It's not happening. Even if you have three cables, it's, it's going to put tremendous stress on a successful journey in an elevator. So that's why we like diversification among many stocks, dozens maybe uh, of cables that are holding that elevator up so that if one snaps, two snaps, three snap, you have some lift from the rest of the cables. Yeah, you, it, the diversification is key. So again, it, it just goes back to what are these dollars as far as their purpose? What is their purpose in the future? And when we start with, when we begin with the end in mind, then we can back up and go, okay, how do we need to allocate these now so that we're ready for the future? All right, Amelia, thank you for your question. In fact, we're going to name this the question of the week. So congratulations to Amelia. We thank her for reaching out with that question. We would love to send you a free Get Ready for the Future show Tumblr for being the question of the week. And we just ask that you email us, email show at getreadyforthefuture.com to claim it. You can see that if you're watching our video versions, very nice Tumblr. I like the little grooves in the bottom third of the cup, (laughs) just a little extra grip there. Very nice Tumblr. Uh, You can get that by just giving us an email to show at getreadyforthefuture.com. And if you'd like to ask a question or if you'd like to ask a question that becomes the question of the week and get that Tumblr, you can call or text them to us the questions that is 501-381-5228 or you can send an email to that same address that we just mentioned show at getreadyforthefuture.com give us a question i know if you're listening to this show you have a financial question there there's very yeah. very likely yeah. something on your mind for whatever reason that has drawn you to listen to this show i just want to encourage you to get that question to us at one of those two ways and we'll get it on the air and address it 
So moving on to our next question on the show today, it's from Austin in Hope, and he writes, Wife and I are in our 40s, and we only have two investment accounts. And in parentheses there, he says zero dollars, zero Roth dollars. And then the second part of the question, is a Roth conversion the best option to add an account and diversify? And he puts that in quotes. Or are there any other options for us? Well, congratulations, getting some money into an investment account. He doesn't mm-hmm. tell us for sure that it's a retirement account. He says two investment accounts. So I think it's important to discuss if a Roth conversion is even uh, an option, right. it has to be a retirement account. So if these are traditional IRA dollars, and we'll go that route before we talk about mm-hmm. if they're in a corporate plan, but if they are traditional IRA dollars, then you do have the ability to uh, convert those to Roth dollars. We're not saying that that is the answer, or certainly that it's not an all yes or all no answer. I think that's really the key that I normally wind up focusing on with people. I had some clients years ago who came in after they had done a conversion, and Scott, what they did, uh, they had been advised by a previous uh, financial advisor that, listen, you need Roth money, you're you're young, you need to get this in Roth money. And so they converted three hundred thousand dollars of traditional IRA money in one year and what that means is from to go from traditional to Roth they paid taxes out of pocket not out of that account they paid taxes out of pocket on three hundred thousand dollars of additional earnings that Mm -hmm. they didn't have the pleasure of receiving as income that year it, it, that is not in in any situation that I have ever seen, Scott. That is not advice that that yeah. GenWealth would have given because of the tax impact that you have in one year. What we have done in many occasions is converted small portions. And let's say that let's say that you just decide, okay, we're going to convert thirty thousand dollars. Well, if if this account if this account has grown in the past year, and I'm just going to throw out easy math numbers, I'm not talking about any particular investment, but if you've grown from 300000 to 330000 you've grown by 10%, and we convert 30000 you're right back at that three hundred, and we do it again the next year and the next year. And what I have literally seen, and it doesn't work you know, exactly to the dollar every year, but it has been pretty close over the times in the past, where we could just convert the growth off of it. If there's a big enough account in question, just convert the growth portion of it. It's not uh, a huge impact on your taxes relative to what the entire account value would have been. Um, and, and for Austin, we don't have any idea what the account value is. We're just using this 300000 as an example. But I, I certainly wouldn't want to incur the taxes on all of that. But incurring taxes on another 30000 that might be doable. Yeah. So it, it really does come down to, at least in part, a tax question, Scott. Yeah, I think so. Where your current tax bracket la- or where your current income lands yeah. you in terms of a tax bracket. Because uh, the $300,000 story, right, if anybody, that's all stacked on top of your uh, income in right. that calendar year. And if you're married filing jointly, Three hundred sixty-four thousand. You're gonna jump if if you made three hundred sixty-four thousand in a given year. You are gonna jump brackets from twenty-four percent federal income tax to thirty-two percent income tax. So that's what Janet's talking about there. Is it could cost you maybe thirty-two percent on some of that conversion, mm-hmm. and is that really worth it to get money into uh, tax-free a tax-free account? We love tax-free income in retirement. Roth IRA. We want you to have one if you can have one. And I think that's the other part of this question for me is it doesn't necessarily get, he doesn't tell me uh, his income. We don't right. know how much his wife and, 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 and him make. And if 
it is under a certain amount, which is around $240,000, $250,000 a year, if they're filing a joint return, they don't need to convert IRA dollars into Roth IRA dollars to get a Roth IRA. Because right. that, that's a part of his question here is to have an, given an, another option for diversification. And we assume that's not meant to be investment diversification. It's meant to be tax diversification. But you can go front end to a Roth. You don't have to convert if you right. don't make too much money. Right. And I, I want to circle back and elaborate a little bit more on your point about diversification because we've had people who came in and they weren't thinking about the diversification in terms of taxes. They were truly thinking that the dollars would be invested differently. Right. So I, I'm going to borrow a, a Dave Ramsey you know, visual uh, explanation on this just a minute. He will explain a mutual fund by having like a, a mason jar and he gets a little refrigerator ABC magnets and puts them in there and like he'll show a W for Walmart and flip it over and it's an M for Microsoft, etc. So these represent all these individual stocks that go into this collection of, of stocks and that's the mutual fund. Now there are different types of mutual funds. They're not always, you know, growth stocks, but in this example they are. That's the investment itself. And then he takes this, I don't know where he got a coat that would fit a mason jar, but the, but the guy has a coat that will fit a mason <laughs> jar and takes it and wraps it around the mason jar and says, now this is the tax treatment. It keeps it all warm and protects it from taxes. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're looking at that makes it either a traditional IRA or a Roth IRA, protecting you from taxes either at the beginning or at the end of the investment. Either you get a deduction for the contribution through the traditional IRA, and this is all assuming that you're in the right income bracket to qualify, but you get a deduction on the front end on a traditional, and then you get tax-free income at the end when you're withdrawing it on a Roth. But it, that's the coat. It's not the investment. You can mm -hmm. invest those dollars however you want to, hopefully in a wise way, but right. however you want to invest them. We're simply talking about tax diversification, not a difference in how it's invested. Now, I think generally a Roth conversion works best for people who are younger uh, and maybe left a job uh, and have mm -hmm. a small 401k that they roll to have an option to roll to an IRA and convert that into Roth dollars, $30,000, $40,000, right? There's a great opportunity there because of where your income likely is in your 30s yeah. compared to what it's likely to be, statistically speaking, in your 50s. You're in a lower tax bracket now, and you have a smaller amount to convert. So back to all of our points there. You know, Scott, another thing about when they're in a job change mode, uh, one of the reasons I really like that as a good time to look at conversion is many times nowadays – they're going to already have inside of their 401k a combination of pre- and post-tax dollars anyway. Because if you've had a Roth option on your contribution, the employer has matched with a traditional, uh, it's not usually broken down and labeled that way in your statement, but it's traditional dollars as far as where it's going to go when it comes out of the 401k. So you have this mixture in your 401k very often of pre- and post-tax dollars. So when you do... If you leave and you do a rollover, those are going to go to two separate accounts. You're going to have a traditional IRA and a Roth IRA. So if you're looking to simplify because you're in your 30s and you don't want to have all of these accounts, you know, between now and retirement, then it is a good time to look at maybe we convert that traditional portion to get it into and combined with the Roth portion. Now, Austin is talking about uh, 
the setup of the types of accounts that he wants to structure for his retirement. But I do think it's a great opportunity to talk about the sequence by which you contribute to those mm-hmm. types of accounts, because we do kind of have a uh, something that would be valuable for people if they're wondering, well, should I put it here? Should I put it there? Or maybe it's even Amelia, should I put it into my stocks? Right. Right. Uh, you you want to make sure if you have an employer plan, uh, like a 401k, that you are contributing enough to get the employer match. Simple, simple concept, but people don't always do it. You need to make sure that you get every free dollar available to you. Your employer is offering it. Why would you leave it on the table behind? Yeah. And then once you've done that, step to a Roth. So, so the Roth or traditional, depending on where your income lands and what you're eligible to be able to do, but to max out the Roth or the traditional, if the Roth is an option for you and you're more than five years out from retirement, that is what we would look at over the traditional IRA. Uh, a lot of times, um, Scott, a CPA might recommend that people do a traditional because it gives them a tax break now. We're looking at your lifetime of taxes, not a calendar year of taxes. And that's why we would look at the Roth over the traditional in most cases. Mm -hmm. And then beyond that, we're going to have you go back to the employer plan. So remember, we've maxed out the match. Then we've gone to either a Roth or traditional and matched that out. And then we're going to circle back to the employer plan. The reason the Roth or traditional IRA comes before going back to the employer plan is the number of investment choices that you have available because mm-hmm. many times those employer plans are going to be very limited on the investment choices. Yeah. And then beyond that, if you still are, are, are blessed to have additional dollars to be able to invest, you can go to non-qualified investments. And the same types of investments, Scott, are really available. It's just we don't have that coat that we talked about. We don't have a right. different tax treatment on it. Yeah. So there's your diversification of uh, taxation on accounts. And Austin, thanks for that question very much. So we do want to remind you, too, uh, we do have a great opportunity. We were talking a little bit more in the tax realm, and, and you certainly want to work with a CPA to get tax advice. We also uh, work very closely with estate planning attorneys. We've got a couple that we work closely with, and one of them is Chris Rippey, and he's going to be with us for our estate planning workshop coming up on November 7th at 630. It's going to be held at the Max Event Venue in Conway. So if you're listening to us and you're in the Faulkner County area, or even if you're a Little Rock and you want to learn more about estate planning, wherever you are, really, this is a great opportunity to do it for free. All you have to do to sign up is either go to getreadyforthefuture.com forward slash estate planning, or even a simpler way. We are really pushing this. We're trying to get you to remember this number. There's so many uses for this. This is the most useful (laughs) phone number that you will have. There you go. Outside of your mom and dad, right? (laughs) 501-381-5228. So many ways to uh, get some information. And this is, uh, uh, in this case, we want you to text the word estate to that number, 501-381-5228. That will sign you up for the estate planning workshop. It's coming up very soon and space is limited. November 7th at 630 at the Max Event Venue in Conway. We've got a couple of more questions we've got to run through, Janet. We're, we're running short on time, so let's get to it. Justin from Benton writes, is there an upper limit to what is desirable in an HSA. At 39 years old, I have $50,000 invested already with 20 years plan before retirement for growth. Do I keep contributing or switch to another type of account? Well, we would say that that's a lot of money in the HSA for 39-year-olds. Yeah, I yeah. Do, I do think you want to have, I mean, I think $50,000 is great as you get closer to retirement uh, because those dollars can be used. And for those who are not familiar with an HSA, we've got a graphic here kind of talking about it. 
but it is it stands for health savings account. And what that really is, is it is a uh, tax-deferred vehicle, uh, but, but specifically designed to help people pay for health care costs or medical costs. One of the things we like about this after you reach age 65 is that it can be used to pay for non-qualified you know, medical expenses, but uh, what you're looking at at this point, at after age 65, you are not going to have to pay any additional taxes. You'll pay state and federal taxes on distributions, but you can use it at that point for non-qualified medical expenses where prior to that, it has to fall under the list of qualified medical expenses. So there is a distinction that happens after 65 that gives you a little bit more flexibility and we like that that freedom that's available. So uh, I don't really I don't really want somebody to overfund it, as we've right. said. But if you do, there is more flexibility once you get to age sixty five than there is before that. Um, but really, we would look at, and this is very much like the conversation that we had with Amelia about the bank stock question. It is a prioritization of dollars question. How much do you have to allocate towards your future, whether it is for, you know, health savings account or other retirement income needs? How much do you have to allocate and what have you already done? What are you doing? And is this your does this need to be your primary focal point? And I would say with fifty thousand dollars already allocated in this arena at thirty nine years old, that you probably need to uh, diversify your focal point a little bit mm-hmm. and, and uh, get more dollars that are just for retirement income and not specifically for the HSA. Well, if you look at the rest of the part of that question, he talks about 20 years planned before retirement. He's he's thinking, I think, that he wants to retire in 20 years, right? So that would put him at about 59 years old. That could be doable, but that part of the planning process needs to be done, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, just having a lot of money in an HSA and throwing money at your 401k and having it be some uh, nebulous number is not really a plan. The HSA is a component uh, of your overall plan for sure, and Janet's already kind of alluded to some of the things you need to consider about how much money you should have in that, and that's along the way. I mean, how much is he is he needing now? Does he have some health problems now? Does someone in his family have health problems now? Are you going to have to pull out on a frequent basis? That number may need to be higher than a generally healthy uh, family uh, would be, but the retirement planning, I think, is the component here that I would do first, right? I mean, do do you want to keep putting in an HSA or do you not want to keep putting in an HSA? I think what helps you decide that is, are you on track for retirement? Uh, if you're contributing now and you have a certain amount now, where is that going to put you 20 years from now? Mm-hmm. And what does that look like from an income perspective? Because again, the the asset level is not near as important, Janet, as the income. Yeah. And I mean, 20 years puts Justin at 59. Mm-hmm. Let's go ahead and just call it 60. That is a pretty common Uh, I'll just say ready to retire age, not necessarily that people are always pulling the trigger on retirement at that point, but you want to be ready because sometimes your health makes the decision for you or your employer makes the decision for you. So being prepared to retire 20 years down the road, I believe is very important. And and that's why you have to back up and look at, all right, how much do we have allocated for health? Okay, that's a lot, but how much do we have allocated for future income needs? Answering your questions on the Get Ready for the Future show, every week we're doing that. And if you've got one, call or text your question to 501-381-5228 or send an email to show at getreadyforthefuture.com. 
We might use your question on the air, and you might even be named the question of the week, which gets you a free Get Ready for the Future show Tumblr. All right, we're up to our final question on today's show from Hudson in Little Rock, and he writes, I've heard you guys talking about the 10-year rule for drawing down an inherited IRA, and I'm nervous. I inherited an IRA three years ago, and I'm worried that withdrawing enough to drain the account by the end of year 10 is going to kill me with taxes over the next 10 years, as I haven't even touched it yet. I know I don't really have much of a choice in what to do, but how do I minimize the impact of taxes? Thanks, Hudson. And for those of you not familiar with the uh, new inherited IRA rules, they are new as of December 19. December of 2019 was when the SECURE Act was passed and it was enacted or became law. Uh, the, the rules were enforced in January of 2020, right before COVID. And they basically changed the way inherited IRA rules have to be withdrawn. In the past, if I'm 50 years old and if my parents passed away and passed an IRA on to me, I would be taking an RMD, a required minimum distribution based on my life expectancy, which 50, I hope is pretty good. I think it is, right? I think it's pretty good. Uh, So it would probably be a minimal amount. And I could stretch that IRA over my lifetime, the withdrawals on that IRA over my lifetime. Wasn't required to do that. You can take it all out, but it would be all taxable. Every dollar that comes out of that is taxed at ordinary income tax rates. So it was a very useful tool for next generation people uh, mm-hmm. to be able to not have to pay a lot in taxes. Well, the SECURE Act changed all of that and said you got to get it all out in 10 years. And originally, there was a lot of confusion over, well, we do, we still have to take the RMD. Or can we let it sit there, as it sounds like Hudson has been doing, for the nine and a half years and take it all out in 10 years, which we right. probably wouldn't recommend ever doing because that's going to be a high tax burden as well. But there's been some change in the way the IRS has interpreted that RMD part. And just for a little bit of clarity here, if if you are the beneficiary of an IRA and the decedent passed before this rule was enacted, right. you get grandfathered in. Yeah. Uh, my, my mother-in-law passed away in 2019. My husband has a beneficiary IRA, and he has the ability to stretch that over the rest of his lifetime. So, uh, so don't feel like the rule changed on something that you already had prior to that date, but then moving forward... Uh, Scott, in 2020, we didn't have to do RMDs. They nixed that requirement because of COVID and allowed people to leave those dollars invested. But then moving forward beyond that, um, we've gotten some clarity from the IRS now. And and Hudson, I think this is really important for you to understand that as Scott was mentioning, and this is this seems to be what you have done, uh, your, your response was, let me just leave the money in there and I'll take it later on, but now you're concerned about taxes. Well, the IRS has now gone back and provided clarity, and what they're actually requiring people to do is to start taking those RMDs on an annual basis. Now, they're not going to penalize for you know their rule not having been clear early on, <laughs> right. uh, but moving forward, starting in 2024, you have to take a required minimum distribution. So if that's not already part of your plan, uh, number one, I think that will help you with your concern about taxes because you're not going to postpone that until the 10th year. Um, Number two, it is required. And Scott, as you referenced, you know, we would not have advised from the beginning to put that off unless it's a small dollar amount. Let's say it's a, let's say it's a $10,000 account. If you take $10,000 in one year, okay, fine. It's not going to kill you on taxes. 
if it is a larger account, and this gets into the tax bracket conversation that yeah. we were having earlier, if it's a larger account, you really do benefit from spreading that over the years. And so we get into taking like one-tenth of it the first year, one-ninth the second, one-eighth, et cetera, until it's completely withdrawn in that tenth and final year. So if you haven't been doing that, Hudson, we would, would recommend that you work with a financial advisor to help you uh, determine how to do that and then where it goes after you withdraw it, Scott, because yep. you don't have to spend it. Right. You can you can turn around and contribute to your own retirement plan, like an IRA, the portion of it that up until the maximum contribution, you can put it into a non-retirement investment account. So there are lots of options to use that money to continue to work for you and be available for your retirement. I think it's also uh, important too to point out, you know, people may be hearing this and going, oh my gosh, do I have to do this? Do I have to do that? Who am I with regard to the inherited IRA? It does, there are some exceptions uh, for this. We are not talking about spouses, okay? So if a, if a husband passes away and the money in the IRA goes to the spouse, that's a spousal IRA. It's not, an inherit, it's not considered an inherited IRA. And in fact, it can be retitled in that spouse's name. So we're not talking about that. And the beneficiary is less than 10 years younger than the decedent. So if I had a case where uh, my client had a an older sister pass away and she was only a few years older than him, well, that would not uh, be uh, subject to the inherited IRA rules. If you have a beneficiary who is chronically ill or disabled, uh, that is an exception. And a minor child of a decedent, the 10 years clock will start, but not until they're 21 years old. So a couple things to remember there, and I've walked right past the closing bell. <laughs> so we'll get right into our final thoughts. Okay, I'm going to give one more bonus round piece for Hudson. Um, we talked about you're required to take this out in, or some of it out in 2024, but it's October. Get your 2023 money out. That's mm. going to help you on your taxes long term. So go ahead and do that. For everybody else, securing financial independence is something that we believe is very important for you. We have available to you a piece that walks through the seven steps to building a sustainable life after work and talking about financial independence. I think it's important for you to know which step you're on. Where are you on your path towards true financial independence? So if you would like to receive a copy of this, all you have to do is text us at that ever important number that Scott mentioned earlier. The number is 501 501- Three eight one five two two eight five zero one three eight one five two two eight. Just text the word steps, and we will get this out to you. Yeah, steps to true financial independence. That's a great offer, and it is absolutely free. And let me finish the show with another free offer for you. You do have to actually drive your vehicle, so there is a little bit of cost in <laughs> gas. But other than that, it's a free estate planning workshop coming up November seventh at six thirty at the Max Event Venue in Conway. So Conway, we're coming to you with, and we're all about estate planning. It is a free educational workshop. No sales pitch in this. We just want to give you some information. What do you need to know about estate planning? You can go to getreadyforthefuture.com forward slash estate planning, or you can sign up by texting the word estate to that number we just told you about, 501-381-5228. We hope to see you there. And that is all the time we have for this week's Get Ready for the Future show. Again, we thank all of our uh, folks who sent in questions. If you'd like to have your question read and answered on the air, just send them to us by calling or texting 501-381-5228, and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to the Get Ready for the Future show. 
If you enjoy hearing from the Gen Wealth team every week, make sure and subscribe to the podcast. And you can always find us on social media. Search for Gen Wealth Financial Advisors on Facebook or on Twitter at Gen Wealth FA. The Gen Wealth Financial team is available to you 24 7 at info at getreadyforthefuture.com or call our offices at 866 653 PLAN. That's 866 653 7526. You should personally consult a financial advisor before making any investment, and no strategy can assure success. Securities offered through LP. PL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. Investment advice offered through Independent Advisor Alliance. Independent Advisor Alliance and GenWealth Financial Advisors are separate entities from LPL Financial. 